You can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to do our best to complete the sermon from last week. Um, Same outline in your Bibles, or in your uh, bulletins, but so much. I, I just really enjoyed working on this sermon and continuing the process of preparing it for you this morning. I have to admit to you that this is, um, well, let me just say this. Number one, this sermon is for believers, for sure. Um, And it's for believers that really mean business about God. And as I was reading through it this morning and praying over it, I just thought, wow, this is a lot. This is a lot to put on people. But the truth of the matter is we need to hear these things, folks. We need to hear these things. So by way of review, let me just kind of go over what we talked about last week real quickly, and then uh, we'll jump into the latter part, uh, which begins actually in verse uh, 12 and goes on through 14. We're in chapter 4 of Philippians. So last week we identified how to begin the way of contentment. We were talking about contentment. And I said that the way to begin contentment begins with gratitude. And we see how Paul, uh, in verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received um, your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Just saying that they sent him a financial gift through Epaphrodites. You can see that uh, in verse 18 here. And he received it in prison in Rome. And so he's reminding them that he did receive it. He was grateful for that. And so this whole section on contentment begins with an attitude of gratitude. That's kind of cool, isn't it? An attitude of gratitude. It could have been the sermon, but no. So next we looked at that there needs to be a willingness on the one who would be content to receive what divine providence brings them. This is on the road, on the way to uh, contentment. You need to be able to receive what divine providence brings to your life. There cannot be a rejection of the circumstances, grumbling and complaining about them, or the adoption of a victim mentality, which is everywhere present today. No personal responsibility for where you find yourself, always finger-pointing, blame-shifting, so forth and so on. You will not be content as long as you stay in that place. Not a good place to be. That would be to call into question the wisdom of the providence of God. You don't want to do that. It would also be to deny his sovereignty over all things and even to wonder at Romans 8.28, the verse that we like to quote, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are... Uh, those who are called according to his purpose. Do we really believe that? If we're complaining, grumbling about things, if we are questioning what's happening in our lives, then the truth of the matter is, no, we don't, we're not believing that verse right there. Moving into 4.11, verse 11, we saw two words that are really pertinent to our talk today. Not that I speak from want, want is one of them, but I have learned to be content. Content is the second word that's very important. In whatever circumstances I'm in, 
we discovered that the word want describes the condition of lacking what is essential. Basically being insufficient. And the only other use that we find in the New Testament is the widow's might, where it says that she was in poverty. In that context, it meant that she gave out of her destitution her two little copper coins. She was really in want. She didn't have anything more, and she gave out of that little that she did have. So as we saw, the idea of hustereo is completely at odds with contentment because contentment means just the opposite. Contentment means to be self-sufficient, not in a uh, carnal sense that you're just pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, but as opposed to want being insufficient or having a lack of the means to handle things, the one who is content is sufficient for whatever may come. Um, the Stoic philosophers used to describe that kind of a person that they were unflappable, unmoved by external circumstances. That isn't even a, a Christian explanation of that. That's a, a pagan philosopher's explanation of contentment. Unflappable and unmoved by external circumstances. You see, discontent is everywhere present around us. Everywhere present. What do you think about all this equity? What is that but discontent? I am not content. I need to have equity, right? Social justice, that's discontent being played out in vivid color before us. How about gender dysphoria? It's a result of discontent with the God-assigned gender at birth. Discontent. Divorce is the outward result of discontent brought about to a relationship fracture, harming everybody that's involved in it. Murder, hatred, wars, you name it. Whenever there is discord and violence at the heart of it all is a deep-seated discontent. That's why this sermon on contentment is so very important to us. The typical response to that discontent is a vain attempt to gain contentment. Right? We, we commented last week on how tragic it is when fellow Christians are captured by hearts filled with discontent. And this is everywhere. Talk about a pandemic. <laughs> a lot of it we see in Western Christianity because in the Western culture, we are a culture of affluence. And so that affluence kind of breeds a discontent. Nobody has enough. Everybody wants just a little bit more. It's discontent. They, in effect, become just like the rest of the world than Christians that have that kind of a thought and, and lifestyle. And, and they're like the people that don't know Christ and they're living without God and without hope in the world. Even though they have God and they have hope, they're not relying on it. They're not trusting that. So understanding contentment and how we can obtain and maintain it in our lives is of vital importance to the believer. That's why I said this message is for believers. Discontented Christians cannot glorify God, nor can they enjoy him. You just can't. Their lives are ineffective for evangelism because of all that they exhibit is a cheerlessness and dismal attitude about things. And they're believers. 
Who would want, <laughs> yeah, I want that for my life, right? It's just not winsome at all. The good news is that Paul told the Philippians, and us by extension, that we can learn contentment. Because he learned contentment. I declared to you that Jeremiah Burroughs gave a great definition of contentment, Christian contentment, divine contentment. He said this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. As I mentioned last week, these people must have just lived in complete solitude. I know they had parishes that they ministered to, but they must have been minuscule to be able to cover so much with so few words. Every word is thought of in that definition. We see in there a specific way of thinking. He says Christian contentment is that sweet inward. Okay, it's something inward. It's sweet in that it's attractive. That's the opposite of being bitter. It's inward because it's a mindset. It's in the mind and the heart. It's, it's quiet, meaning that there's a lack of internal turmoil and unsettledness. And it's gracious because the enabling grace of God is evidenced in the believer's inner person. Self-drivenness, okay? That, that selfish ambition has been driven out of the soul that is content. And there's also a recognition of God's working in the life, and this is a capstone of Christian contentment. Honestly, grasping and living under the sovereignty of God is the heart of contentment. It really is. Study the sovereignty of God. Put him in his right place in your thinking and in your life, and you will be content. As a side note, okay, parentheses, the rare jewel of Christian contentment is an excellent book to purchase by Jeremiah Burroughs. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. There's a modern rewrite of that book. And no slam on Mr. Davis, Andrew Davis, who wrote it, but um, get the original. The rewrite is called The Power of Christian Contentment. I mean, if you're completely snowed by Puritan speech, you know, the English, old English, go ahead and get the new one. But honestly, the rare jewel of Christian contentment is, is just marvelous. And then there's one other one. It's a short little tomb. It's uh, The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson, um, his, his writings, um, he, he practices just pithy little short sentences. It, it's the way he writes. And his little book on contentment, The Art of Divine Contentment, is very short. So those are three books that you can get if you want to study about contentment, and they will be worth your while. So, there's the response to God's working. And this is also in Burl's explanation of what contentment is. There's the free submission to God's working and delighting in it. Freely submit means not grudgingly or hesitantly. That would be mumbling and grumbling about the situation you find yourself in. Not as under compulsion, but freely submitting to whatever God deems fit to bring into the life. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God 
that he may exalt you at the proper time. That he may. There is no self-drivenness here. There is no selfish ambition. There is a quiet waiting on God, trusting him. That he may exalt you at the proper time. And it isn't our time. Very seldom is it our time. When I think of what I think the time should be, it's always way too quick. I've never been right on when I think it's the right time. Sometimes years. I know modern American Christianity with our devices and everything, years? What are you talking about? You know, we're seconds. We get ticked off if our internet is not up and running, ready to go, right? Yeah, that's not the way of contentment. So you freely submit. Does the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Neither does the one who is content question God's working, but freely submits to it. But there's even more to Burl's description because he says, not only do you submit to it, willingly accept it, but you delight. You delight in the very decisions God makes regarding your individual life. Uh, We sang another song today, very, very convicting. Listen to the words that you're actually singing. Some of you may not want to sing them. (laughs) Seriously, you're responsible for those things. You're singing in worship to the Lord. And, And the one song I always think of, I surrender all. Do we really hear what we're saying to God? Really all? The believer who is content is the believer who can actually sing those lyrics honestly and even joyfully because they delight in all God's working in their lives. Not questioning, not resisting or arguing, not for a moment, but rather they delight in God's choices in their lives, every condition, every situation, and they are content. In 1 Peter 5.10, the latter part of submitting yourselves under the mighty hand of God, it says this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know, I was looking on Radius's website. Uh, Radius is the mission organization that Brad Boozer started. He'll be with us for the conference. And one one of their core values is suffering. They say suffering is normative. That's one of their core values. And I am so glad and it's so reminiscent of what I learned with New Tribe's mission when we went through their their training. Suffering is normative. We think it's like some imposter. Like it's some thing that should never happen to us now that we're believers. Are you kidding me? That is the very vehicle that God uses for sanctification to transform us into the image of Christ is suffering. So how we respond during times of suffering is indicative of what we understand of God's work in the life. And you say, wow. And that's what I said. How can I be preaching this? This is heavy stuff. How on earth can someone learn contentment like that? Well, let me read the text to you again and we'll get on with the new stuff. 
beginning in verse 10 of chapter 4. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity, talking about the gift that they sent to him. Verse 11, not that I speak from want or insufficiency, because I have learned to be sufficient in whatever circumstances I am in. I've learned to be content. Verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, that covers them all, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Let's pray. Father, as we come to these words, I just, um, I really look forward to meeting Paul and talking with him. He is an amazing man, a man that had so much in the area of religion, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a well-educated man, a well-spoken man, a man that was respected, and he gave it all up. He turned from that and submitted himself to you as the Lord and Savior of his life and lived the rest of his days in complete submission to you. Lord, let us learn from this man who said he learned contentment in all situations. We need it, Father, we need it. We don't know what the future is going to bring us. We hear harbingers of Delta strain of COVID. We see people talking about enforcing mask wearing again and vaccinations. And Lord, everything's topsy-turvy. Father, it's a time of turmoil. Let us as believers in you Submit ourselves under your mighty hand. Take whatever comes our way and let us be a witness to those watching that we are content. We're not in turmoil. We're not insufficient for these things so that we might draw them to ask us, what is the hope that's within you that we might share the truth of the gospel of grace? Thank you for hearing our prayer. Open our eyes today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to go on to understanding the key to contentment, beginning in verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Contentment did not come naturally to Paul. We talked about that. He had an upbringing. He was somebody if ever there is somebody in the world, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, trained by Gamaliel, who was like a celebrity preacher of the day, right? So he was one of those guys that's going around all the circuits. He was Paul, or Saul, I should say, at that time. But he learned to be content after he met Jesus, when everything was laid at the foot of Christ. That's where he learned contentment. And this gives us as believers, great hope because contentment is able to be obtained through learning. It's able to be obtained through experience. 
The Greek word actually means to learn from experience. When he says, I have learned, it's the word mantano. Mantano, it's, it's where we get the, the Greek word for discipleship, mathetes. And it means to learn, to increase knowledge. It's a process. And to learn from inquiry and observation. But even more importantly, through participation. Knowledge puffeth up. But when you get your hands dirty in the process, when you engage in this learning process, that's when the rubber meets the road. That's when you begin to learn contentment. And there's no other way, people. Suffering is normative. <laughs> and if you want to learn to be content, you're going to have to learn to suffer quietly, receptively, as from the hand of God, a Father that loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son to die in your place, receive all the punishment for your sins if you'd only believe in him. Well, then you need to yield to him on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. This is seen in the youth of Montano in Ephesians 4.20 where Paul compares the believers to the Gentile believers, or Gentiles, not believers, and he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. And what he talks about right prior to that, you can turn to it, I don't want to take the time this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, he's talking about the way the Gentiles or the pagans acted, and they were callous of heart, and they were involved in all sorts of immorality and all sorts of bad stuff, and he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. And he says, so don't act like the Gentiles who live, act behave and function in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every evil deed and every kind of impurity with greediness, but you did not learn Christ that way. You see? There's participation, there's function, there's action, there's behavior that's attached to that learning. It's not just intellectual knowledge. Here's a place of outward circumstance in contentment. This is interesting. Humble means and prosperity. Being filled and going hungry. Having abundance and suffering need. That's outward circumstances. That's material Things are taking place here. Paul provided a list of their contrasting circumstances through which he learned to be content. And it's not so much in the, each separate circumstance that he got his doctrine in contentment. Rather, it, it was through the supernatural power of the Spirit of God working in his life so that whether he was rich or poor, hungry or well-fed, he remained in that frame of mind experiencing that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every situation. It didn't matter what the outward circumstances were. The guy was steady. We're like this, right? Depending on the circumstances. If we get anything from this sermon on contentment, you need to get this. It is not about the outward circumstances or abundance, how much you have. 
But rather, Christian contentment is present no matter what the circumstances might be, no matter what the amount of material things you have or don't have. It doesn't matter. Jeff Bezos, if he would humble himself and trust God, could retain all that wealth. I think he's the richest man in the world. We're talking, you know, upwards of hundreds of billions of dollars that one man has. He could have that and be content. He could. It's not a matter of abundance. And then there's me. I can be content. It's not a matter of how much you have or how much you don't have. That is the wrong way to look at contentment. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. That's contentment. I desire. That desire is very important. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. My portion. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Paul says in verse 13, and that is the key to contentment, Jesus Christ. Isn't it always Jesus? It's kind of like the Sunday school answer. Jesus, you're always right. Any question you're asked, just say, Jesus. And when it boils down, you come to it, it's Jesus it's like the difference between air and water. If you have a bottle and it's filled with air, guess what? It can't be filled with water at the same time, correct? Or vice versa. If you have a bottle filled with water, you can't fill it with air. That's the same way it is. When a person is filled with pursuing things in the world, they cannot be filled with Christ. He is not first. Things in the world have usurped that. If the things of the world are their portion, the things of Christ will not be. It's really a simple equation, isn't it? What things in the world am I talking about? Well, self-identity. This is a big one. Self-expression. I need to express myself. No, you don't. You probably shouldn't, actually. But this is huge, self-identity. Who you perceive yourself to be may or may not be in sync with reality, but you will fight to the death to preserve your perception of yourself. We get our self-perception through the word of God. He identifies who we are now as Christians, as believers. And if your life is not in sync with his depiction of who you are, then you're living a lie. You're trying to defend something that is not true. How about material possessions? Maybe as simple as a toy or a plaything or a device that you just got to have. The Xbox, whatever. The car, the home. I mean, you can go all the way from really small stuff to all really huge stuff. It don't matter. It's like it doesn't matter the circumstance that you're in, rich or poor, hungry or fed. It doesn't matter. It's a heart. Where is your heart? And where all the women are strong. It, you know, it, it, it's so... <laughs> I'm sorry, I get these goofy things that come into my mind when I'm studying, and I put them in my sermon. Bear with me, okay? 
Happiness, subjectively defined. Everyone's happiness is different. Don't use that as a gauge for contentment. A good name, similar to protection or self-identity, but this is what you perceive your reputation to be. What is your reputation really? Children. Children that excel can be one of those things in the world that just squeezes Jesus completely out of the equation. It's very subjective, but very real. And it reminded me of Garrison Keillor. I don't know if you guys remember him. Uh, Lake Woebegone. It's kind of like that. And, and this is the quote that came to my mind when I was thinking about how, how much we want our children to excel and be, be better than average, right? He says of Lake Woebegone, it's the little town that time forgot and decades cannot improve. And then he says, and it's where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. I'm sad, but I think that's the way a lot of Christians think their lives should be. I really do. And sorry to bring Garrison into it. He is not even close to a believer. He's very, very sarcastic towards believing, but boy, does he know his Bible. I think he was raised Lutheran right here in Minnesota, so he knows his Bible well. How about expectations? Expectations squeeze Christ out of the equation. Expectations that exceed God's providence. When we harbor expectations outside of the providence of God, we have supplanted his sovereign will with our personal desires. I'm going to read that again because it's important. When we harbor expectations that are outside the providence of God, what he has given to us, we have supplanted his sovereign will with our own personal desires. Happiness is a slippery expectation of the world that has no resemblance to Christian contentment. It's an imposter. And it's more elusive than a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Happiness. What on earth is it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is directly related to John 15.5 that says apart from Christ... I can do nothing. Those are some pretty categorical terms. Do you really believe it? Contentment in difficult times, it's, it's fine when the weather is good and people appreciate you, but let criticism come or even outright rejection come into your life. No matter the good that you've done, you still end up rejected. And then... You're kept at a distance by some because of it. And then it is only supernatural contentment that would ever allow you to remain quiet inwardly as well as outwardly. Do you know what that's like? Have you experienced rejection? Betrayal? False accusations? Criticisms that aren't true? Do you remain content? To lose your place that you once enjoyed through no fault of your own and to be forced into a lower place where once you stood tall. Only then will you be able to see divine contentment or distress displayed inwardly and outwardly. You see, those experiences are really testing grounds to see if we're content in Christ or not. And how we respond to those things shows us our hearts. 
to be rejected and scorned by those who once held you in high esteem based only on a passing whim that they picked up wrongly, maybe heard something mentioned, and they credit it to your account. One that is not even true, and yet you retain your composure and exhibit poise and graciousness even toward those who scorn you. That is divine contentment revealed in full. That is a mature Christian. That is a Christian who can sing, I surrender all. Christ is my all. That's where we're all headed. That's where we need to go. This is the kind of contentment Paul speaks about in Philippians 4.12. Now there are just a couple things that squeeze Christ out of the life. And I just mentioned a couple of them. There are multitudes more. And, and one thing or another, outward circumstances, crash into our lives, and you're taken by those situations, and then you react emotionally and allow them to enter into your hearts, and they will displace Christ. It's the water that comes into the, the bottle that's filled with air, if Christ is air. Or it's the bottle that's filled with air, and Christ is the water. You can't have both at the same time. There can be no contentment because he has been squeezed out. But Paul said he learned to be content in whatever circumstance because I can do all things or experience whatever circumstances life throws at me through him who strengthens me. Christ is not squeezed out of the life but remains filling the life with strength even in the adverse situations, even in the superlative situations, Steady contentment. Doesn't your soul long for that, people? Not displayed in circumstances, whether good or bad. Riches, good fortune, can lead to arrogance and self-satisfaction. And they displace Christ as central in the life. But poverty and need can just as easily consume a person and displace Christ as well. The rich person can begin to count on their blessings of being rich and become self-satisfied, thereby squeezing Christ out of his place. And the poor person, of course, can cry, unfair, I need more, and push Christ out of the way. 2 Corinthians 11.3 is a helpful text here. But I am afraid that, and this is Paul, as a serpent deceived Eve, by his craftiness. Just a second, let's stop at Eve. What do you think? Was Eve content? Wasn't that the basis of what she did in the garden? She was discontent with everything that God had provided for her. She wanted more. Paul says, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, minds are important, will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion. Simplicity here means single-mindedness, singleness, not, not easy. Not, that's what we see as simplicity. And the phrase purity of devotion is actually an extension of the Greek word simplicity. The whole idea here is that when there is a singular devotion to Christ, you will not be led astray. You will not be deceived kind of back in where we already learned that he will protect your hearts and your minds like an umpire with his peace, right? 
You'll be able to maintain your spiritual equilibrium. Christianity is not an intellectual exercise only for those who are thinkers. It's eternal life for people, ordinary people like you and like me. And it's already begun in our lives. We are experiencing eternal life now. Nothing is going to be added to that when we are raptured. Nothing's going to be added to that when we pass away and go into presence of... We will just continue our life that we are now, we have already begun in Christ. When devotion remains singular, there is no opportunity for circumstances to move you away from Christ. And that's what Paul meant when he said, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. His heart and his mind and his entire life was fixed on Christ alone. He was not fooled by the daily onslaught of imposters trying to steal his repose. As I was thinking and working on the sermon and I wrote that sentence, I thought, huh, and I thought of a poem. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't wait, uh, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can hear, or if you can bear to hear the truth that you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things that you gave your life to broken and then stoop and build them up again with worn out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither forces nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Rudyard Kipling, the poem If. And to keep in sync with our content of our sermon, rather than you'll be a man, my son, you will know contentment, my son. He must have got a way to think about those things because they really capture life, don't they? The ups and downs and twists and turns. Can we truly say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire, there's that stinking word again, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever.
my portion. Spirituality intrudes into material possessions, right? In that little word portion. Let me give you some background. When the psalmist says God was his portion, he's thinking back to the Israelites as they came out of the 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt and eventually 40 years of walking in the wilderness and they entered the promised land, right? Do you remember what happened? God divided the land up into portions, for each of the tribes of Israel. Each received their own portion. Important word. Except the tribe of Levi. Why? Well, the tribe of Levi were chosen to be God's priests, and their portion was Yahweh. Yahweh alone. They didn't get a portion of property or land. Deuteronomy 10, 8 and 9 says this. Yahweh is his inheritance, just as Yahweh your God spoke to him. In Numbers 18.20, Then Yahweh said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in the land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. But you don't have to be a priest in the Old Testament to have Yahweh as your portion. King David says in Psalm 16, 5 and 6. Oh, Yahweh, you are the portion of my inheritance. David understood a man after God's own heart. And you're my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. The terms portion, lot, lines, heritage, they all talk about Distribution of land parcels divvied up among the tribes of Israel. But Yahweh was King David, portion and his inheritance. A very familiar text from Lamentations, Jeremiah's lament, springs a ray of confident hope. He watched the demise of Israel. Yahweh's loving kindness indeed never ceases for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We know that part, right? Listen to the rest. Yahweh is my portion. Yahweh is my portion. That's why you could say that. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I have hope in him. Not in the circumstances that he was observing and was involved in, but in Yahweh. Even in the context of unspeakable, unspeakable human suffering that Jeremiah was witnessing, Yahweh is Jeremiah's portion. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows row, whatever my lot, there's that word again, what was the songwriter thinking about? Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me, he learned to say it is what? Well with my soul. Beloved, do you know this kind of contentment? Have you even experienced a little bit of it? If not, let me call you into it. But you've got to release yourself. You've got to give up all those aspirations and expectations. And you need to just put yourself under the mighty hand of God. Let him be God. Let him be God in your life. We need to learn to separate God himself from his blessings, when we can grasp that God himself is our portion, Yahweh, 
then we will know contentment. And this is living on a, a higher plane than this ball of dust and turmoil we call earth. This is filled with sadness and disappointment here on earth. But Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You keep him in perfect peace, Isaiah said. That perfect peace, kind of like contentment. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Not being robbed from the simplicity of the devotion to Christ. Single-minded Christ. Christ in every situation. The boss tells you to do something that you already did and he wasn't happy with the way you did it and you have to redo it. Single-mindedness, Christ. I submit it to you, Lord. I'm not going to hold a grudge against this man. I'm going to do a better job by your grace enabling me to do it. Oh, there's so many places every day we have an opportunity to practice this. Now listen, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. You're trusting in God. It's a moment-by-moment existence, people. Well, to verse 14, because we can't leave this undone. Verse 14, Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. I love this. It trails after such wonderful thoughts that we've just exegeted and expounded to you. Almost like an afterthought, doesn't it? He says, oh, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, nevertheless. Like Columbo, right? One more thing. He says, nevertheless. He lets the dear Philippian believers know that he did not take their sacrificial gift for granted. And so he closes this portion with a note of recognition and appreciation. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. What he wanted them to know is that even if they hadn't, he would still be content. Why? Because he had learned in whatever circumstance he found himself to be content. I pray it so with you. It can be, but you've got to let go. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for dear Paul and his sharing with us. I mean, in a sense, he almost um, exhorted the Philippians that they really needn't send that gift to him because he was okay. But he did thank them for their generosity. Lord, help us to learn what this contentment is about, this divine contentment that we've talked about. Help us to Take these truths and, and, and maybe just one little portion of them that struck our heart today and begin to apply it in our lives that we might move more into a place of utter surrender to you, knowing that you do all things well, you make no mistakes, because you're God. And Father, help us not to squeal when we suffer, but help us to just turn it over to you casting all our anxiety on you because you care for us. And let us remember that even submitting ourselves under the mighty hand of God in due season, if after we've suffered for a while, you will make things right for us. That might be in heaven. We don't know. That's up to you. And that's where we need to release ourselves into your hand. Thank you, Father, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.